How much of a uh, baseball fan are you now, Ryan? I know you used to be a pretty big baseball fan, but how much do you follow the sport now? Uh, when I'm at school, I spend literally no time. Like, we just had a two-week break, and I watched probably more Red Sox games than I have the last three, four years combined. So I would say at this point, I mean, I'll pay attention to it in terms of if it pops up on Twitter, but that's about the extent of it for me now. But, but you used to be a big baseball. I mean, at least you fought, used to follow a lot. I remember you at one point, didn't you work for a site that covered, weren't you covering Giants prospects or something like that for a while? Yeah, or? I did Tigers one summer, then Giants the next summer. And it kind of, it almost correlated to when my my fantasy baseball league with my cousin and a bunch of his friends just kind of crapped out. That's about the time I stopped because, you know, you play fantasy sports, it keeps you... That's literally the only reason I play fantasy football is because it makes me pay attention to the NFL. Otherwise, I would not pay a lick of attention to the NFL. So that was a, about the time that um, that started to wane. Then I moved out to Colorado post-grad. And then when I came back, moved back to Ohio, it, I was kind of over it. Yeah, well, the point I'm getting to it, and it's just because I covered I covered a baseball game last covered a baseball game last night. I covered the ridiculous four hour thirty three minute nine inning game between the Angels and Rangers last night, and did that. I was working on a freelance story there last night for AP. But the one cool thing, and I don't know if there's a way it could work in hockey, but something that actually was kind of that that found kind of cool about baseball season this year was it's confusing, but they have two trade deadlines. You've got the first trade deadline, and then roughly a month later, you've got the non-waiver trade deadline, where you, if you put, you can make you can make trades. Um, and I'm messing the process up, but basically, if you put a guy on waivers, and if a team and if he clears, you can trade him, or if someone claims him, you can work out a trade with that team. And it was kind of uh, it was something I was kind of thinking about just the other when I was driving home at 1:30 in the morning last night, where. Wouldn't it be kind of cool set up, and this is a complete, this is something that wouldn't work. I realize that as I'm saying this, but just in this fantasy world, wouldn't it be kind of kind of neat to create a, somewhat of a second trade deadline for in the NHL? Because right now we have our NHL trade deadline, which sometimes exciting, sometimes it's not. But what if we created a second one where you have your first one, but then after the first one you can, you can have a second one where maybe you only can make one deal or you can only make... Um, you can only you can only you can only trade each team can only trade one player after before this after the first trade deadline and before the second trade deadline. I don't know. I was I was just thinking of this fantasy world driving back because it was kind of exciting to track and see to go through and you had the first trade deadline a month ago, roughly a month ago, and then then on right before September rolls around, you've got the Astros and Tigers making trades to move Justin Verlander literally at the last minute to send to Houston. So. I don't know. I, I was just kind of thinking, let's let's get that into hockey somehow. It, it wouldn't work, but it's it's a fantasy land in my in my head. You just make the trade deadline a week before the playoffs starts. It doesn't need to be as early as it is. Well, did did you know that actually the trade deadline in the NHL, um, it's not when it actually is. Yes, that's technically the trade deadline, but that's the trade deadline to be traded to be eligible for the NHL playoffs. Oh, see, that's the. Uh... The thing with this one too is because the it, the August thirty first deadline technically isn't another trade deadline. It's just it's just because it, you're it is so weird how it's it's structured. There, there's not really 
when you think about it, a hard trade deadline in Major League Baseball either. It's mm-hmm. at July 31st, you can't trade. So after July 31st, you can't trade someone without putting them through waivers. And after August 31st, you can trade someone, but they can't play for you in the playoffs. So at that point, it's mm-hmm. like, why do you even bother trading for them? Unless it's so, like prospects or whatever. But Yeah, and, so that, and the rule in the NHL is so there's the trade deadline. And that's what we call the trade deadline. But you can trade a guy, say the Stars hypothetically, say the Stars hypothetically wanted to, the Stars, we knew they were going to miss the playoffs last year. Hypothetically, say they wanted to, and the Kings ended up missing the playoffs too. Hypothetically, say the Stars and Kings wanted to pull off the Ben Bishop trade in the last week of the regular season. They theoretically could have done that. He just wouldn't have been eligible to play in the playoffs. Uh, so it's 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 an interesting caveat. Well, that's that's uh, ramblings and musing. Let's let's actually let's actually talk about the stars. Let's uh, let's let's get this opening going. You are listening to the wrong side of the red line, Dallas Stars podcast. Here is your host, Sean Shapiro. Hi. Let's let's actually talk about hockey now, um, not baseball trade deadlines and everything like that. It's it's September second. We are actually uh, in the month where hockey games will actually be played. Regular season doesn't start till October sixth against Vegas, but the uh, we're roughly a month, not a month, what, two weeks. Sorry, two weeks from training camp and a week from today. A week from today, uh, I'll be up in Traverse City covering the prospects tournament up there. So. Well, we still have about four weeks until real games. I, it's starting to actually feel like hockey season, Ryan. Yeah, and I mean, it's like 55 degrees outside here right now, so it actually, in terms of weather, also feels like hockey season, at least in Ohio. I'm excited, though. This is a good time of year. Yeah. Before we uh, before we kind of preview what to look forward to over the next month, let's let's go through and just... Let's let's reset real quick what the Stars have done since their final regular season game in April. And obviously it's a lot. Um, we've got coaching changes. We've got player additions. We've got uh, even a draft to quickly go over here real quick. Not in depth. We did that back when the draft, but just a quick summary. Um, we go back to April where the Stars did not renew Lindy Ruff's contract uh, after a disappointing season. Ken Hitchcock comes in. Um, and uh, that was kind of the first of a of a uh, s- snowball of moves where everything just kind of kept where the stars kept us busy over the next two and a half months. Um, they traded for Ben. They traded for Ben Bishop's rights and signed him to a six-year contract in May. Um, and that was a move that the Ben Bishop trade was a move that, while the stars were the ones that went out and made the trade, Bishop had the no-trade clause um, and could have potentially vetoed it if the stars were on his list and that's a move that Jim Nill credits with kind of getting this entire summer rolling Bishop's faith to come in and because Bishop didn't have to sign with the team Bishop while they traded for him he didn't they didn't have to sign for uh, he didn't have to sign for six years and that's a move that Jim Nill kind of credits with getting a bunch of other things rolling then after uh, after trading for Bishop we kind of move into the things kind of moved into the expansion draft era where Cody Eakin was lost in the expansion draft and the Stars made the decision to protect Antoine Roussel and Brett Ritchie instead of Cody Eakin. Um, and 
Kodahikin leaves an expansion draft. The Stars then gained a piece through the expansion draft because Mark Mathot was left unprotected by the Ottawa Senators, and uh, Dallas then was able to work out a trade about a week later, I believe, um, to, uh, to, to land Mathot from, from Vegas and what was pretty... The Stars got pretty good value in that trade, I would say, for the Mathot deal. Um, and then Stars went into... There was the draft where we talk, we've talked about that, where the Stars... But that won't have an immediate impact this season, where the Stars added Miro Heishkinen, their top their new top prospect. Um, and then the Stars were real busy in free agency and adding Martin Hansel, which was a bit of a surprise, just not because of the type of player he is, just because of what Jim Nill had said before. Um, and then, obviously, adding Alexander Radulov, uh, one of the big gets of free agency, and then a couple other depth signs, which I'm sure we'll touch on a little bit. Um, of all the moves, of all the moves, Ryan, just which I kind of just quickly laid out there, which new player or coach is going to have the biggest impact this year in your mind? Well, I think it's the simple answer to this question is it's a combination because I think looking at, I, I mean, obviously they started the offseason off right by adding a coach and a staff as a whole that should be a lot more committed to developing players on the defensive side of the ice this year, which I I think, I mean, depending on how, um, how many beers you've had, I feel like you could make an argument that if this, I mean, obviously not with the goalie, but if you came back with the same defensive corpus last season but added the coaching staff that's present right now, I think you could make an argument that there would be improvement on that side of the ice. I don't know that it'd be a good argument, but you could certainly make it. Um, so starting with that, I think that's key. Then, I mean, I think it's a combination of Mark Mathot adding stability to the blue line. You look at, I mean, last year they went in with the strategy of we're letting all the veterans walk. We're just going to sink or swim with the kids. And it obviously did not work out well. Um, now you have a team, you, you have a situation now where you should have six guys who you're playing on a nightly basis. There shouldn't be this musical chairs thing going on anymore. And on top of that, you have a much more veteran group than you did at this point last year. You got John Klingberg, another season under his belt. You have Martin Mathot adding to the stabilizing presence of Dan Hamhuse. So the left side of your defensive pair should theoretically be in pretty good shape. You have Essel Lindell who made good strides last year. I think it'll be interesting to see how I, I, operating under the assumption that Steven Johns is just going to be the guy who's playing every night on that third pair. So assuming that happens, it'll be interesting to see what happens to his game now that he isn't kind of having his psyche battered on a nightly basis. And then obviously Julius Honka is a very intriguing player, and I'm excited to see a lot of him this year. And then obviously on the back end, it's going to be assuming Ben Bishop can stay healthy. I think that can't be understated is assuming Ben Bishop can stay healthy. I think it's going to do wonders for this team, having a goaltender back there that they know they can trust that they don't have to get back and kind of basically they know that they have a guy back there who can bail them out. Um, and I mean, that even plays into Martin Hansel, a guy who's more a more defensive oriented player who I think is going to help cover up some of the shortcomings of some of the other players that the stars have it forward on the defensive side of the ice. So, I mean, that's kind of the complicated way of explaining a simple answer, but um, it's just, I think it's just going to be a combination of all of those factors combining on that side of the ice. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It's the, uh, the biggest, I think one of the bigger things that 
you're looking at more. I mean, Radulov is going to have a. I think Radulov will have a big impact. This team needed to add. This team needed to add a goal scorer, um, which is kind of funny to think to say that about a team that led the league in goals two years ago. But they needed to add that. But I, it's you're on the right track there. Where the bigger impact is going to be defensively, where this team was not good defensively, and you look at the teams that have won. The Pittsburgh Penguins have won Stanley Cup, have won back-to-back Stanley Cups. They've been an offensive team. They have been, but the Penguins have also been a good defensive team. It hasn't been the biggest. It hasn't been the biggest name defensive, but you've looked at what they've done in the playoffs, and they've been able to operate efficiently in their own end. Um, it's not the old. It's not the old mid-90s Devils winning Stanley Cups, but they're, they're, the Penguins have been able to play effective defense, which. I think it's kind of it's kind of shown there's a balance there to be drawn between the it's you have to have that controlled chaos between your offense and defense, um, and I think one thing uh, there was a there was a good Q and A that in uh, in, the more, in the Dallas Morning News the other day with from Mike Heike and, and Hitchcock where Hitchcock kind of said something that has been there's been wisp that I've I've known about Hitchcock but he kind of said it publicly where Hitchcock and Rick Wilson are going to have six defensemen. They're going to have their six, and they're going to play. There is going to be consistency on the back end. We can debate whether the merits of carrying seven or eight defensemen, but Hitchcock said he it's irrelevant. He doesn't care whether there's seven or eight because in his mind, he's going to have his battle in training camp for six jobs, and you're going to win one of those six jobs, and then you're going to play. And so there's going to be way more consistency. There's going to be actual consistency on the defensive end the guys who do win those jobs are going to have a chance to actually mesh together, and the young guys who win those jobs, assuming Julius Honka and Steven Johns, are going to be able to play through their mistakes and, and mature. And it's not going to be, um, and there's not going to be an issue where Steven Johns is going to be looking over his shoulder every day and wondering if he commits a delay of game penalty, will he be benched for eight days? Um I, I think that's a huge thing. Just having that consistency and having, and ha- and having that built in from confidence from a coaching staff. It's gonna. I mean, it's it's gonna suck for the extra defenseman. That's that's one of those things where whoever is gonna be the seventh defenseman or eighth defenseman, if they carry eight, I hope they don't. But if they do carry, whoever it's it's gonna suck for those individuals. They're gonna basically be in a spot where they're gonna be stuck. They're gonna be stuck in the press box all season, but. It's going to be well known they're stuck. It's not going to be something where there's going to be, it's, there's not going to be a system where they're going to be uh, having opportunities to jump in and jump out. And when they do get in, whether they'll be, and 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 there won't be the guy, the guys on the ice won't be looking over their shoulder all the time. Um, so it's going to suck for defensemen seven and eight, seven or eight, depending on who they are. But I I don't mind it. I, I'm actually I'm fine with the consistency. I want to see six guys, and I think that's a big thing for that this coaching staff is going to bring in. Um, and I think Mathot is a, Mathot's a big part of that consistency too, because it's, I think it's, it's, uh, and I'm not comparing, I, I, I know a lot of people have compared John Klingberg to Eric Carlson. Um, and I think that's, I think we need to always tap the brakes on that. I mean, while, while Klingberg and Carlson are both, defensive Swedish defenseman with offensive flair to put Klingberg to compare Klingberg to Carlson is a disservice to Klingberg. Klingberg is it, it puts unfair expectations on Klingberg because Klingberg is not nearly as good as Eric Carlson. <laughs> and 
and Eric Carlson, is, and, and it's also a disservice to Eric Carlson to claim that Klingberg is, is on his level, frankly. And that's, I think Klingberg's a very good NHL defenseman, but um, but Mathot, from a stylistic-wise, I think he can come in and allow Klingberg to play a better game, and may, and hopefully he can kind of do what Carlson did. And I don't think he'll ever be what Eric Carlson was, it, it, Car- Eric Carlson is, but hopefully he can do on a, lo- on a, on a lesser level and actually be an Eric Carlson light and not only play better offensively, but people forget Eric Carlson blocks shots. Eric Carlson kills penalties now. He does. He is a all-around defenseman. And I, you give, you look at his game. Mark Mathot actually deserves credit for helping Carlson take the next step in his game and just being the right partner for him and allowing Carlson's game to morph over the past three, four years into a truly elite level. And maybe, maybe he can help Klingberg take that next step from being a good defenseman to a semi-great defenseman. No, there's uh, there's definitely only probably, you can count off one hand, the number of <clears throat> defensemen in the world who can do what Eric Carlson does. And mm-hmm. I, there's kind of a lot to unpack there, and I, I think you made an important point regarding the, uh, the Pittsburgh Penguins, and I'm going to kind of try to tie this all together now. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think this holds true anymore because I'm pretty sure Justin Schultz finished like eighth in the Norris voting or something like that this year. But at the time the Penguins won the Stanley Cup, they were the only team in NHL history who had ever been to the Stanley Cup finals without having a defenseman that had ever received votes for the Norris Trophy, which is remarkable when you think about it. But what it kind of shows you is that if you have a group of good, solid defenders who have bought into a system and play to their strengths with their, let, let me phrase it this way. If you have a coaching staff who is able to identify what they have and kind of play those guys to their strengths, regardless of how talented they may or may not be, you don't need, obviously you're going to be better having a guy like Eric Carlson on your team. That's not what I'm trying to say here, but you don't necessarily, you can get by without having a guy like that. If you're smart about how you're playing your guys and you have guys who bought into a system. And that kind of plays, I'm going to try to tie this into John Klingberg now. I think one of the issues for him last year was he wanted, he was kind of in that awkward place of trying to be the stallion that he was the year before when he had a guy like Alex Goligoski on his side. And say what you will about Alex Goligoski. I know Stars fans, certain he was the whipping boy for Stars fans for the longest time and for no fault of his own. But he provided a steady presence on Klingberg's side where he knew that if he charged up ice and maybe something happened and the play start just went back the other way, that he would be covered. And this isn't a knock on Essel Lindell at all, but he was a rookie last year, so you don't necessarily have that same sort of stability, which I think the most important thing that Mark Mathot is going to bring is that stability back to John Klingberg's game where he knows if he jumps up the ice and you know, the puck gets turned over or he gets knocked off the puck or whatever, that they're not totally screwed going back the other way. So he can kind of take more of those chances and he doesn't have to be maybe as gun shy in his game. Um, so that'll, I think that'll tie together well. And I think that we will see John Klingberg kind of get back to where he was the year before last. I mean, I feel like a lot of people forget that what he finished fifth in the Norris voting the year before or something like that. He had like 58 points in 74 games. That is a remarkable number. For, I mean, it's not. I mean, it's not far off from Eric Carlson numbers. I, but I mean, so it's. I think 
that presence will help him this year. And I think that having the six defenseman is going to help them kind of develop that continuity. And it kind of becomes important that, you know, you have a seventh defenseman who's willing, who's also willing to buy in and know, Hey, maybe I might play only 15, 20 games this year, but you need to have a guy whose mentality is right. Who, who's not going to get, he's he's not going to let that get him down. He knows his role on this team is to kind of be a plug and place guy. And, um, and he has to know that that is also an important role on the team, even though he might not be playing every night. So it's it's kind of a balancing act, but it, if you have the right guys, that, it can work. On that last note there, on the seventh guy, you can be that plug-and-play guy. It's one of those, that's why the way I look at it is, and if, if we were talking about who was going to be in the lineup every night, it's one thing, but if we're talking about that role for the seventh guy, the plug-and-play guy, the guy who can actually handle that responsibility i think greg patterns you're perfect you greg pattern i think we've touched on this before greg patterns the perfect seventh um patrick nemeth is not cannot be the healthy scratch on this team patrick nemeth has been the past couple years patrick nemeth has been has spent time in the press box and has been very frustrated and it's it doesn't have a good impact on the team it doesn't have a good impact on his overall psyche it doesn't have a good impact when, when you've got guys who are frustrated and are I don't want to say moping, but basically moping in the press box. You've you've got a situation where that's not a that's not a good impact on the team. Um, Greg Patteron, on the other hand, is a little bit more of a I don't is not a veteran player, but he's in the he's not he's not a he's not a young he's not a younger player, and he can play the same game whether he plays eight games a year or 82 games a year and I think he could be a really good good seventh defense really good seventh defenseman now that means that that and basically then you put this on Jim Nil how do you and if say Jamie Lexiak comes in and say Jamie Lexiak comes in and somehow wins a spot in that top six in training camp which I don't think it happens I just don't see how it happens but hypothetically it does hypothetically does then you've got some other interesting scenarios to figure out but basically you're looking at a spot where Jim Nils being asked to he's got three he's got he's got to figure out what he wants to do and what he wants to do with these extra defensemen because if it's the six who we think it's going to if we if it's the six who we think it's going to be if we think it's going to be the combination of Mathot Klingberg uh Hughes Honka and, and Lyndall Johns that means you could probably waive Nemeth. I don't think there's much trade value for him. I think he's. I think he's a. I think his. I think he could do well in another NHL city, but I just don't see why anyone would make a trade for him because they have their own guys who have been journeymen and and and, and probably are in similar spots. Uh, Alexia could probably get you some. Uh, could probably get some return for you, but not nearly what you would hope for a first round pick. Um, I think he's personally Alexiak is the one who I don't I don't think would clear waivers just because somebody would definitely take a flyer on his size and his raw ability. So maybe you do hold on to him. Maybe maybe you make him seven just because you say hey maybe somebody will have an injury, somebody will have an injury and we can't get a trade for him right now in training camp. But first week of November when player X and you know on an Eastern Conference team rolls an ankle, we have well well we can we can make a move then. It's to to boil, to boil back what I'm getting to is the point is I, I like Greg Pattern as the seventh. Um, it's I don't know. It's, I'm glad I'm not the one who has to figure out exactly what I'm going to do with the other three because 
we finally reached that point in this line of defensemen with the Stars where they have to make a decision. We've, we've, we've talked for over a year about how they keep putting off the decision. There was eight guys out. I remember we had an entire con- we had an entire podcast last October or last November about what to do with Jamie Alexiak because he was the eighth guy at the time and he was never playing. By the end of the year, Nemeth became the eighth guy and everything like that. And the Stars basically have just kept pushing this decision back and back. And now they added Mathot, Honka's ready, and now the management team here has to actually make a decision on what defensemen they value and. They, they somehow even avoided it during the expansion draft. I mean, they somehow avoided making that decision during the expansion draft by because by because Vegas didn't help them by taking a player that they left exposed, a defenseman they left exposed. We're finally going to see a decision on that, and it's going to be it's going to be nice to actually have some closure on that topic at least, whether it's whether it's the day before opening night or whether it's in the middle of training camp. Um, that was a, that was a bit of a tangent about defensemen. I apologize for that, but, uh, We're used to it. yeah, to continue on defense, just the other thing I just want to touch on with just defensively that I think will be a big part of this team. Um, and I think it's going to go, I think it goes a long way is, and, and you mentioned it earlier is Ben Bishop. There's just some stability. There's just a, confidence and a stability there that comes in with Bishop for, for, for the defenseman. There is a, there is, there's something that comes in and there's, there's a mental, there's a, there's another mental level there where the defensemen feel confident with him back there. There's not worries that there's not worries that you have a goalie like Antti Niemi back there who reached points this past season where I was, I mean, I, frankly, I was surprised Antti Niemi got an NHL contract for next season after after his past season, because there was times where he just didn't even look like an AHL goalie. Um, so having Bishop back there, there's there's added confidence, and it also just it just creates some stability. And 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 it was the type of move that signaled the Stars were willing to rebuild. It was an early move. It was a move that the Stars were willing to they were willing to go after and fix their problems. Um, it's. Defensively, the Stars will be a better team this year. They, they that that's just cut cut and dry. We we can put it that way. And and the penalty kill should be. And I want to kind of transition this into a more specific part of the uh, of the Stars' defense. The penalty kill should be much better too. Um, last year they were at seventy three point four percent on the penalty kill, I think, which was the uh, I might be off by point two or something like that, but it was the worst in the league. It was the worst penalty kill since the ninety three ninety four Ottawa Senators. Yeah, that should uh-huh. um, that should be a uh, a kind of a early bright spot for the Stars fans. Is the Stars are probably going to improve by a win or two simply because the penalty kill literally cannot get any worse. There is literally nowhere to go for the penalty kill but up. And it w- it's like one of those things where it's like, you know, you talk about you add a couple guys and you're going to make an improvements and improvements and it should do this and blah blah blah. Just by being an average penalty kill team, we're not even talking about taking the next step from, all right, we were a, a decent penalty kill team last year. We need to be a good penalty kill team this year. Simply by being a mediocre penalty kill team, the Stars are probably going to pick up an extra three to six points in the standings, just like that. So that's a nice little, uh, a little bright spot to think about as we get ready for the season. And, and adding to that ray of sunshine, you have, uh, 
all of a sudden you added half of your first penalty killing unit in the offseason. I mean, you, you add all of a sudden I, I see and, and things are still to be things are still to be determined and, and obviously there's lots of to, to figure out lines and, and pairs and everything right now and stuff, but you could legitimately see a top penalty killing unit right going into the season of uh, of Mathot, Hansel. Um, if you want, if you want to load up on your defensive for the big penalty kills, you could you could go Mathot, Foxa, Hansel, and you could and have uh, and, and maybe maybe Klingberg, maybe John. But basically, you're looking at a very good first penalty kill unit, kill penalty killing unit, or and then the guys who did a decent job penalty, killing penalties last year. The guys who are the depth guys, the Antoine Roussels, the Curtis McKenzie's, the one that actually did good, actually did a decent job killing penalties. All of a sudden, they're not asked to be that top line penalty killing unit. They can be that energy group that comes out for twenty to thirty seconds and creates a bit of energy and, and gets guys running around, everything like that. So, the penalty kill, if it's average, that will be great news for the Stars because it, that's, but. It has potential to not only be average; it has potential to be very good, actually. And um, I think Rick Wilson brings in some nice stability to that too, because uh, there wasn't uh, there wasn't much direction coaching-wise coming from the penalty kill last year. And we kind of saw that. Uh, we kind of saw the results of that on the ice. Um, it's kind of like the uh, the trickle down economics of hockey lines, where you have. Um... You have guys who are playing out of who might be fine penalty killers in their own right, and I mean it, it's the same thing for anything. Like there was with the Peng, like I, go, I default to the Penguins because it's just the easiest to remember. You know, Crystal Tang's out for most of the year, and you have guys playing up in the lineup. And in the case of last year, Justin Schultz kind of took that and ran with it, but typically that doesn't really happen that way. So now you have a situation where you're you have guys who are slight you replace or you don't replace them, but you add pieces into the lineup that slot where they should, so then those guys are sliding down in the lineup and they're sliding where they should, and it just, it all works out in the end. The uh, the other thing about just the, the penalty kill and what's going to be really, I, th- I think it's a underrated part of it too, I'm going back to Ben Bishop, is having a goalie that can handle the puck well actually impacts the can can have a nice impact on the penalty kill because if having a goalie that Bishop I would if you were to rank the top puck handling goalies in the NHL right now where where would Ben Bishop fall on that list for you you don't have to have an exact number but what range would he fall in for you off the top of my head I definitely say top five I mean without I mean that this is something that I would have to look at every goalie and mm-hmm. every goalie tandem in the league to know but I mean when you say th- I mean you know there's guys who definitely don't touch the puck where you know, like Mark Andre Fleury's a guy like that. If the puck's coming back there. Don't really just let it be. Don't don't touch it. Um, and that that changed and that changed throughout Fleury's career. Early in Fleury's career, he he wandered quite a bit. Yeah, and but it's it's one of those things where you know, like you knew Martin Broder, Marty Turco. These were guys that if you dumped the puck in, you weren't getting it. They were going to take it and they were going to flip it the other way. And Ben Bishop is kind of a guy like that too. And I mean his. I, obviously, size is important for a goalie, but I think another underrated, not really an underrated aspect of the size, but something that doesn't get talked about as much is the reach, where that puck is getting rimmed around off the backboards. It's, I kind of want to see, like, just an experiment to see if he could, how far away from the boards he could be to reach the boards with his stick to stop that puck. 
You know what I mean? Like that would be interesting to see. And that's kind of, it's, I feel like there are, there is this, like, if you talk to someone who's kind of um, proficient in analytics and whatnot, I'm sure there's statistics that talk about or discuss a goaltender's proficiency at playing the puck in certain areas and how, like, the dump-in percentage on him that immediately becomes transition the other way. Um, I feel like Ben Bishop's number would be pretty high up on that if that's actually a thing that exists and I didn't just make it up. And if it's not a thing that exists, I totally should make it up and then I'll be rich and famous. Probably not. I don't think statistics is a lucrative field, but whatever. The uh, the one thing, like I think I think a lot of people, the one thing I really like about Ben Bishop's puck handling, and I went through and I watched a couple of his, I went through and watched a couple of his games with Camp and a couple of games with uh, with the Kings last week. Just the thing about his puck handling, and I think a lot of people. Like, there's good puck handlers, and then there's smart puck handlers. For example, Mike Smith is a very good puck handling goalie. Mike Smith isn't the smartest puck handling goalie. Uh, who, Mike Smith, who it's kind of weird to think about him as a Calgary. He's Cal- Calgary now, right, for Mike Smith? Yes, like, yes. Yeah, it's kind of weird, but Bishop is a very... Bishop is a talented puck handler. He's also very smart with how he handles the puck. He's very He, he makes the little... Uh, he makes the little plays. He does the little. He can. He goes behind the net. He makes the smart passes. He doesn't. He can make the long passes that have led to assists. Um, and, and he's done that in his career. But the little things, how he, the stopping the puck behind the net, making the little six foot pass that diffuses a diffuses a forecheck, things like that. He's very good at things that we. Uh, like he's not a like Pekarene is not the most talented puck handler in the world. But we saw what he did with Nashville where. Pekarin, it was a very smart puck handler, um, where he did a very good job of controlling the puck, being composed, being patient, making the smart pass, and then Nashville would get the puck to their quick defenseman and, and get get up and running. Um, Bishop is kind of in that mold for me, where he's I think he's a more talented puck holder, puck handler than Pekarine, but he's smart like Pekarine, where he can be, where he can, and it, and it could work very well. And it could work very well. Not only does it help on the penalty kill, where you can stop dump-ins and rim-arounds and everything like that, it can also work really well with this young, active defense that skates well. Where if you can have, if you can have Bishop stopping a puck behind the net and giving Julius Honka six extra feet of space to start a rush, that can be invaluable. I mean, it, it's something that it's kind, it's kind of exciting to see how that will build up and how breakouts. Could, could start from behind their own net this year. In Ben Bishop's three full seasons as Tampa Bay starting goaltender, he had seven assists. It's a pretty good number for a goaltender. So that's a, it, it's one of those things that it's one of the, you hear, you're sitting there, you're playing NHL on the Xbox, and it's one of those canned lines that um, get recycled over and over and over again. And after a while, you just mute it because you're tired of listening to it. But one of the can't, I know this because I was playing it this morning because I'm trying to put off studying because I already don't have motivation this semester is having a goaltender who's adept at playing the puck is like having a third defenseman back there. And that's a, you know, it's, it's valuable in areas where, you know, a team's just dumping it in so they can get a change. You get a goalie who gets back there and quickly fires it up ice that can lead to an on man rush the other way. I mean, that's a, just one example of it, but it's, it's definitely a weapon to have back there that not every team has yeah we, we've talked so much about the 
<laughs> and it's funny, we've talked so much about how much better the Stars will be defensively and, and things like that, but this team is also, the, the offseason moves, they should be better offensively this year, too. Uh, I think we we talked about it right after the signing. We talked about the impact Alexander Radulov will have and things like that, but I think there's also... I look at this lineup and you play around with potential and I think the Stars created a nice opportunity for more depth scoring this year if you if you kind of pick up what I'm saying where yes. it's where it's where it's guys who maybe were asked to play a slightly bigger role last year um, are maybe farther down in the lineup or don't have the pressure to be offensive uh, juggernauts for lack of a better word um, and you could and I think I think that's big I think that if you can have your if you we have the top line who we think it's going to be of Ben Sagan and Radulov, if if we can, if, if the stars are in the position where they're drawing so much attention they're going to draw a ton of attention a and then b you've got the depth that actually can put the puck in the net and I think the stars actually have that this year they set themselves up pretty well um, and it's obviously there's some question marks there, but I, I see more depth scoring this year, which is something that I'm sure we can talk about at length once we get closer to training camp and watch these guys actually on the ice, but just playing playing the game on paper, which can be dangerous at times, but right now it's it's, it's a fun game to play. Well, you hit the, uh, the nail on the head right off the top saying with the Radulov signing that on the surface when you think about it without thinking about it too much, it seems kind of extra where it's like, well, that was kind of unnecessary but i remember distinctly early in the summer after they picked up uh i don't remember if it was before or after they picked up hansel but you sent out uh, a hypothetical line chart and it looked kind of grisly in terms of there's a there's some potential here but none of it's really proven other than those two guys at the top and the aging center in the middle who doesn't really play defense anymore and by adding martin hansel and alex radulov not only do you now have what can compete as the top line in hockey in terms of an offensive production standpoint. But I, I, I could get a little hairy with who actually plays center. And I, it sounds like there's some interesting theories slash ideas being floated around by the coaching staff. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of intrigued to see where that goes, but you're, you're absolutely right. I think that, um, I mean, for all the, uh, the pub that the stars offense got two years ago, I think it's, kind of easy to forget that they were really average offensively last year and that's not obviously that's not a good combo when you're significantly below average defensively but um it, it, it's a nice situation now where it should go back to um, how it was two years ago and not in terms of the high flying they're scoring five goals a game but it should go back to the how it was where um you have that top line of Ben and Sagan, and in this case, probably Radulov. I think that's kind of the foregone conclusion, is the line that's getting the majority of defensive attention, which is opening things up further down the lineup for other guys. And now, at least in theory, the way the guys that they have on the roster, those guys should be in a much better position to capitalize on playing inferior competition. So it's, it's one of those, it, it goes back to the whole trickle down thing that it, it's, it's one of those things you plug one hole and it kind of just benefits, you know, you stop the flooding on the, uh, on the top level and all of a sudden everything else kind of gets better below that. Um, so that'll be good. Um, you'll have guys like 
there won't be as much pressure on, like, for example, Brett Ritchie now. It's, it's not going to be one of those things where you're throwing him up there on the top line saying, all right, go hang with these guys. Now you're throwing him down there on, say, the third line where he could, there's not as much pressure. It's just, you know, go out there and give us 10 to 12 good minutes every night, start hitting the net, and um, just see what happens. We don't need you to go out there and be a guy for us. We just need you to go out there and not get caved in, really. Let's, let's talk about some of those. And I guess it's not theories because it's actual coaching staff. They're the people who get to make the decision. But let's talk about some of the uh, the things that were that were said recently where uh, Hitch, Ken Hitchcock said was asked about the, uh, the Spezza-Hansel situation, and we talked about how that was how, – how would that work at center? And Ken Hitchcock said something very interesting because every every time you've played with lineup and you've played with potential lineups and you look at, okay, well, if Jason Spez is not a center, he's playing a right wing. Well, Ken Hitchcock said, well, I see him as a center slash left wing, which was kind of, uh, which is something that was we had not been discussing. We had talked about him being on the right side, um, him, him being a... And he also threw out the idea, just to put all of the things, if you haven't read the story, there's, I retweeted it the other day. Um, he talked about Spezza being someone who plays both center and left wing, and he doesn't really see him on the same line as Hansel. And he also mentioned seeing Foxa and Hansel on the same line, which is an interesting concept because while I like I like the concept of, I mean, it's, it's a big... Fox and Hansel together, and if, if if you put, hypothetically, I guess if you put maybe Antoine Roussel with them or or whatever, you're looking at a good shutdown defensive line. But I personally was looking forward to seeing Fox. I like the idea of Fox having his own line. I think he's part of the. He's a center you want to be to continue to grow, and I think there's a. I don't want to use the word missed opportunity, but I think there's there's an opportunity there where. I kept looking at him being the third, the being the third line center, taking the next step in that role this year. It was it was some interesting comments to break down because also if Hansel and Spezza aren't on the same line, maybe we're looking at Spezza as the third line center, hypothetically in this world too. It's it was just I'll use the word the comments were interesting. And what how did you from how do you break down just and take a look at what was said and. Uh, and, and read into those those comments because the one thing that we do know is Ken Hitchcock actually doesn't pull punches like prior coaching staffs. There are right, actually think, right. there are actually things to be believed about what he said. I think interesting is probably the best word for it. I think at the same time it's kind of important to not get too caught up in the details this early it before training camp even starts because I mean a, a lot can change and it's one of those things where you know guys are mixing lines anyway so it's something that I feel like it probably was in, not inevitable but it's something that was probably going to end up coming up anyway um I like it in the sense that it gives us something different to talk about and something different to think about because you're absolutely right I don't see the logic in having arguably your two best face-off guys on the same line you kind of want to I feel like spread that wealth out a little bit um I mean, it's good in the sense that if they're on the ice at the same time taking a defensive zone draw late in a one-goal game, then you're probably going to win that face-off regardless. But that's situational. That's situational. You can make changes like that in a game. Right. Um, It goes back to a couple years ago when they had Roussel, Eakin, and 
whoever the hell I forgot who was playing right wing on that line, but it was one of the better third lines in hockey. And if you like Garbit, Garbit, that's right. That pest line you put Rousseau out there with Fox and Hansel, and that's a line you threw out there against the other team's top line, and they're probably not going to have a very fun game because that's a lot of pest out on the ice at the same time. Um, so I think, in theory, that line is interesting. In practice, I feel like you're kind of meshing. I think you're putting two guys who are kind of similar out there at the same time, and it's I don't know that that's – I mean – I'm not going to sit here and kind of say that's not the wisest thing to do because if I was that smart, I'd be coaching hockey right now and not doing what I'm doing. Um, so I think, I think it'll be interesting to see. I mean, it's an interest it, it, in theory. I think it could be, I, I keep saying interesting and I feel like I've said interesting like 17 times in the last two minutes, but I don't, I literally don't know what else to call it because it's, it, it was so kind of out of the blue. That it just, it just kind of like catches you off guard and you kind of have to double take and say, wait, did he really just say that? Why, wait, why weren't we thinking about that at all? You know what I mean? It's. Yeah. Well, and, and, and the Hansel Fox, a combination, the thing that's kind of, odd, they're both left-handed. It'd be right. Be different. Exactly. If, if, if they were both, if one, if, if, if say Fox, was right-handed and you're looking at, okay, well, Fox is taking draws on his strong side and Hansel's taking draws on his strong side then it makes more sense to me. But they're both left-handed, which means Martin Hansel is... You're going to defer to Martin Hansel. Martin Hansel won 56.4% of his face-offs last year. He's one of the best face-off men in the NHL. I feel like you're taking away from... You're taking away an asset in, in Foxa who is better than other face-off men, but he's not better than Martin Hansel. <laughs> right, and then it becomes a situation where you're stacking that up against Jason Spezza's line, and it becomes a situation of okay, well, who's going to take draws on that line? Who's going to play defense on that line? And what line is going to... I mean, in this day and age of the NHL, kind of assigning a second, third, fourth line role is almost a fool's errand because after your top player... I mean, even like you with the top teams, they're meshing guys down the lineup, so it's almost like, you know, whatever. But it becomes... I feel like we have... I feel like in today's NHL, we kind of have a... Uh, I think... I think you have one of two setups on a team. You either have your top line and a bottom nine, and I don't and I don't mean bottom nine as in like those guys are all bottom nine, but it's just you could flip two, four, three. Right. Or, it or just you have, it varies game to it, game. Yeah. Or you have basically a top line, a bottom a bottom line, and a middle six. Like I, I don't think you have a, you don't really have a so called one through four anymore. Right. It's kind of fluid, and I think I guess that would be the situation we'd be looking at here because then if you're if you were to break it down and say well who's your second best line there even though Jason Spezza is I, I, I still feel like he's a guy who's capable of 50 to 60 points on a season you look at a guy like that it's you know it's a line of Radic Fox of Martin Hansel Antoine Roussel better than a line of Jason Spezza Matthias Janmark and Brent Ritchie it, it becomes one of those situations where it's like well how are we classifying this what's what what is life what is the universe made of? All these questions that I don't have answers to. So I'm, I don't know, man. This is, it's cool that it, it, it's, it's something fresh to think about. I would, I guess is how I've chosen to look at it. It kind of breaks the, uh, the monotony of what we thought we knew. And it's kind of, it, it, it just, it, it creates possibilities, I guess, to think about. 
Yeah, it's it, it's interesting, isn't it? It's I keep calling it interesting because I truly don't like the idea of Fox and Hansel playing on the same line together. And but it's one of those things that I, you don't you can't knock it until you've seen it. I guess it, it's just in theory I don't like the idea, so I'm just going to call it interesting until it's either proven or disproven to be a terrible idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it it's. And then I, I get to Spezza too on on the left wing, and I just the one thing that just that makes that make that kind of a head make Spezza's left wing kind of head scratchers because we look at this team and we look at okay, well we knew before they signed Radulov, we were looking at okay, well their actual natural right wings were Brett Ritchie and basically Tyler Pitlick for a day, um, yeah. And they were and so but they have I mean they've got the left the left wing hierarchy. You've got. Uh, you you have Jamie Ben at the top. You already you already have Roussel in a natural as, as a natural left wing. I mean, it was one of those where left wing wasn't the position of uh, left wing wasn't the position where you felt like you had to move a guy to. It was it was right wing. Right, exactly. You you got. I mean, assuming everything seems everything I kind of seen seems that uh, Yanmark is good on his front. I mean, obviously that's something we won't know until. That's another thing we won't know until it's actually put into put into play. But I mean, you got him, you, Jason Dickinson, hypothetically, Curtis McKenzie. I mean, you're six deep with guys who can play NHL minutes this season on the left side, and I, you're, like you said, you're two or three deep at best on right side. Mm-hmm. Let's. Uh, it's it's kind. Of, it's fun to talk about. It's been it's been fun too to see. It's actually been fun to get back to the rink this week because the players have been. Uh, Groups of players have been skating, have been having informal skates over at the rink in Frisco. So it's been kind of fun to actually see guys back on the ice. For example, it's, we saw Ben Bishop join the player group of players informally skating on Thursday this past week. Um, it's and you talk to the players, and there's talked to a couple of players after each of those skates, and and there's actually some they're kind of excited coming into this season. It's uh, there everyone associated with the team last season obviously wants to prove last year was in the past and they and they've moved on from that and then the new guys who have come in they're excited about what the team has done in the offseason and really and, and really taking those strides to prove that they're making last year a, a, a piece of the past um a good conversation with tyler pitlick about that who um doesn't really know it. it was funny he doesn't really know anyone on the team doesn't really know anyone on team on the team but to see what Dallas was doing and and he's a guy who he's he's not like the Alexander Radulovs of the world who had who would to all 30 teams would take him in a heartbeat but he's a guy who good depth player one of the main reasons he looked at Dallas was the fact that what what they had done how they were what they had done two years ago and how they were working to make that a reality again. And it's, it's kind of cool to hear that from the players. And it also would make it much more fun to cover this year because it's, it's not fun to cover. It's not fun to cover a team when the last, when we already know by January that the season's going to end in April. So I'm looking forward to the season starting. Um, it's uh and we're in September, and like, and so let's let's kind of lay out what to look forward to now over in the month of September. Um, we've got uh, in a week from uh, starting next week, uh, starting Thursday, sorry, starting Friday, uh, September September eighth, 
is the uh, Traverse City Prospects Tournament, which uh, the roster is not officially out for that yet. Uh, it should be announced early this week, um, which is always a really nice opportunity to go and watch Stars prospects against uh, against some of the uh, against their peers, which is always a it's always a nice way to judge prospects because it's one thing for us to watch prospects against themselves against the other prospects within their own organization development camp or watch them in their junior ranks and everything like that. But to see the group of stars prospects on the ice against say the Chicago Blackhawks prospects or the Columbus Blue Jackets prospects on the ice, it's nice to kind of see that comparison and you get an idea of actually where these guys are in individual, uh, uh, where they are on, the, on this pecking order, not just within their own organization, but within kind of the prospect pool for looking at a giant big prospect pool that is all in HL 31 teams where the stars kind of fall on that. Um, it's also a chance for uh, Traverse City also turns into a nice chance where it can be a springboard for a surprise player to be a, uh, for a surprise player to, to make an NHL roster. We saw uh, two years ago, Matthias Janmark went from somebody no one had heard about, a guy who was supposed to be playing in Sweden again that year, had a great Traverse City tournament, sprung board into a training camp, and uh, now we're talking about him, a guy two years later who, after he missed a season, is a guy who could be a key part when he comes back. Yeah, it's like a, uh, a preseason World Juniors almost. I mean, obviously not as much on the line, but um, especially when you look at guys like... Um, I don't know i'm not going to say any off the top of my head but you look at guys who are playing the the european guys who are playing professional leagues or you got like guriano blast you're playing in the ahl it's a nice opportunity to kind of assess these guys again like you said against their age group as opposed to guys who may have been playing at a or even even like top prospects in the ohl if they're playing on a crap team or they're playing against guys who aren't as good it's a nice chance to kind of group these guys all together where the talent pool's not as watered down, I guess would be the right way to describe it. Mm-hmm. So it's a good, it, it's going to be, it's nice to kind of just get that all together. And it is more of a, I feel like more of a strong way to kind of update ourselves on these guys as the, uh, as we're getting into the season here. Well, for example, it's a, it's a chance to, um, once again, the roster is not officially announced yet, but it's it's a chance for us to see, for example, say Miro Heiskanen, who's the Stars' number three, who was the Stars' first pick this this past draft and third third overall choice. Uh, it's a chance to potentially see him on the ice uh, when they play Columbus against uh, Pierre Luc Dubois, who was the third overall pick, third or second overall pick last year by Columbus. Um, it's just a, it's a really good chance to kind of compare where you're seeing the cream of the crop and. You don't have you don't have to question their level of competition. We know what their level of competition is because for some sometimes you look at these you you look at what these kids are doing in junior leagues or in Europe and you watch what they do and you're impressed. And sometimes you have to take into account the level of competition. Um, in this one, you're seeing the level of competition is is the group of guys they'll be competing with in the NHL and for jobs over the next 10, 15 years of their lives. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. I'm kind of bummed I can't go. That would have been fun. Yeah. Well, you'll be able to. I believe the Red Wings. I can't promise it because it's on the. Uh, it's it's not. I don't have any control over that. But I believe the Red Wings are streaming the games again. Um, on their website. Oh, that's cool. 
Um, they did a little bit of it last year. Um, two years ago, they didn't. So I believe they are streaming the games, and so there might be an opportunity there. If that is the case, if that's officially the case, I'll put it out on Twitter and I'll put it in within the in the preview once the roster comes out. But um, so there is an opportunity if you're not going to Traverse City to uh, to watch games. And on the flip side, if you are anyone is ever looking for kind of a cool hockey vacation that's relic that's cool hockey vacation, the Traverse City tournaments. It's, an, it's, a, it's a neat experience. A, Traverse City is kind of a, it's nice to go to Traverse City in early September. The temperature is nice and cool, especially if you're coming up from Texas. It's right on the lake. And for, I believe it's 10 bucks, 10 bucks a day, you get four games. Um, and there's eight NHL teams there, and you can walk around, and you can rub elbows with GMs and coaches for all eight of those NHL teams. And, um and plus dozens more scouts from all other 30 and all 31 NHL teams as well in there. It's a cool experience. So if anyone, if someone's ever looking for a uh, getaway trip in early September, I always suggest, I would suggest the Traverse city tournament. <laughs> Stupid school ruining my life. We could have had our first in-person podcast. We could have, we could have. I ruin everything. You could still, you could still, you could still come up for two days. See, if I w- if I was in BG, I would, but that's it's three hours to get to BG on top of like another five hours after that. And I I did enough driving the last two weeks to last me a lifetime. I am I don't like driving. It, I don't have the Fair patience enough. for it. Fair enough. Um, with uh, one one player individual, I just want to kind of touch on as we as we head into Traverse City that I'll be interested to watch. Will just be, and I've seen him, I've written about him a little bit recently, and um, is is Rope Hints. And you try with with prospects sometimes you try and not get overexcited about a guy, but I've been very excited watching Rope Hints play in both development camp and watch his, a couple of his games last year. And then watching him in informal skates, which is very dangerous to judge a guy based off of informal skates. But I've been very, I've been impressed with Rope Hints. I think he's a guy who, I don't know if he can have, I don't know if he can have a Yanmark effect, but I think he's a guy who could be, he could, he, he theoretically could be NHL ready this year. I don't know if he'll play in the NHL this year because I don't know how the numbers will shake out and everything like that, but. He could be. I'm interested to see if he has if he is impressive in my mind. Uh, he's impressive in my mind if he can live up to that level in Traverse City against other prospects his age, and if he can if if the and if I if I'm if I'm right about him, and I hope I am because I think he could be a very exciting prospect and a guy that. Um, ironically enough, I, I believe I have to double check this. I believe I believe he was the, uh, I believe he was the draft pick in the Eric Cole deal. You might be right. I wouldn't know that. Off. Actually, let me see if I can trace this back here. Um, but he's a guy that I don't know that he can win himself a roster spot based on this tournament, but I definitely think he's a guy that if he has a really strong tournament, he could put himself in a position where, God forbid, they have a injury to Sagan or Spezza and they're going to be out for a period of time. I think he's a guy who can put himself in a position to be the guy that gets called up and gets, and basically becomes the guy that replaces one of those guys should an injury happen. Because he's a guy who has puck skills, and I he's probably of guys who could theoretically be called up to contribute this year. Other than Gurionov, I don't know that the Stars have a guy 
who fits that bill with his puck skills right now? Uh, they don't. No, they don't have anyone. There's there's guys who could be called up who would fit the role. There's the Remy Ellies, the Jamel Smiths of the world that would be the energy guys and the guys who would come up and you could drop on a fourth line wing and they could and they could play well. Or you've got the guys who are even the the Justin Dowlings of the world and the Brian Flynn's of the world, who the guys who maybe a little bit older and, and smarter players, but they don't have a call up other than Garyanov and Hints are the only two guys they would call up that you would bring up and you'd be and you want to watch every time they got the puck on their stick. Agreed. Uh, hold on. I am tracing this back. Yeah, that would I believe that would be the second round pick the Stars got from the Red Wings. Uh, the Stars have traded Eric Cole and a third round pick. Yeah, the second round pick, so that should be yeah, so that was a uh, that was a nice little trade for uh, for Dallas there. Well, and it's funny the guy they wanted in that trade ended up being the the, the failure part of the deal. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Could you imagine if Matthias Backman panned out too? You trade the ghost of Eric Cole for two roster guys and a top prospect. That would be yeah. Uh, that would have been a return. I mean, that was still a return, but. And, and they knew they were they knew they were taking a risk on Matthias Backman when they traded for him. They knew that uh, they knew that he was a guy who had a little bit who had left Grand Rapids before and gone back to Europe. They knew they were taking a risk on on Backman, but I don't think they realized. I mean, you never know. You didn't, they didn't know who they were going to pick in the draft, but they didn't know. They didn't realize what other. Uh, I guess that that's why you play the lottery on those prospects and things like that. You never know which one's going to uh, to pan out. Okay. Okay, you better off buying a lottery ticket. I'm just looking. I don't even know why I'm continuing to look through this draft now, but yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Well, let's uh, let's start start wrapping up this podcast, and by wrapping up, I mean just move to another segment. Um, put out on Twitter the other day uh, asking for people just to if there's any questions on what uh, what they wanted answered, and so let's uh, let's 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 hop on a couple of those. Um, First one here from uh, Andrew uh, Andrew LA um, Twitter handle KD5MDK. Um, how much better is Pitlick than Dickinson, Jamel Smith, Ellie? Um, to be fair, I don't think Pitlick is better than Jason Dickinson. I will say that I think Jason Dickinson's a better player than Tyler Pitlick. I do think Tyler Pitlick is a better roster option than Jamel Smith and Remy Ellie. Um, Pitlick is a uh, Tyler Pitlick is a player that I, I watched quite a bit when he was with an with Oklahoma City, uh, Bakersfield. Talked to a couple people about him. Well, he, he's a very good player when healthy, but uh, Tyler Pitlick's injury history is one of the more it's one it's a, it's a scare it's it's a red flag when you look at his and you'd like to think that it's it's not something that hopefully it's behind him. But let me uh, pull up here. Um, let me pull up Tyler Pitlick's list of injuries. Hold on. I was going to say, um, his, uh, on his HockeyDB page, he, right out of the WHL, he played 62 games, then 44 games, then 49 games, then math, 31 games between OKC and Edmonton in 14-15, 15-16, he played 37, then he only played 31 last year. So we're looking at a guy who's never really had a full season of professional hockey. 
Yeah, and he's the guy who uh, I believe. What was his? He played what about? What was that number again? Thirty something games last year with Edmonton. Thirty-one. Okay. He is a player that uh, he was good when he was healthy, but he tore his ACL last year. Um, hold on, I just found his uh, Tyler Pitlick's injury history is. Uh, I mean, he hasn't had really had a truly healthy season since 2011-2012. So, 2012-13 season, he tore ligaments in his knee and had concussion issues. Um, 2013-14 season, uh, he sprained his knee. Um, 2014-15 season, uh, his knee actually held up, but he lacerated his spleen. Oh, no. And then 2015-16 season, he had concussion issues and only played 37 games. And then last season, he had the knee issues resurfaced, and he had the ACL, and he, and he, and he tore the ACL in, in his left knee, I believe. Um, it's unless you're a goalie or unless someone like slides into you, it's so hard to tear a knee ligament playing hockey, especially your ACL, because that's like a rotational injury almost. Yeah, yeah I, I know. I mean, it's something I tore. I tore my ACL, and that was something not playing hockey. I did that playing. I was, I was being an idiot, and I was playing soccer, and it was. But that was that was a that was a twist. I, I mean, I and I've played goalie my entire life in hockey, and I never tore my ACL, and I just did it on a weird twist playing soccer. But you're right; it's that's not easy it, to do. That's how I learned that this summer. That's the mechanism for injury. You're, it's a plant and a twist, and that's how it tears. Mm-hmm. So Tyler Pitlick is uh, hopefully his injury history is behind him, but it's not. Uh, if if you were if you were to label somebody as a injury risk, for better or worse, yeah. he's he's earned he's earned that label. Look that up in the dictionary, and his face will pop up right there. So I to to go back to the actual question, I think if he's healthy, I think he's a better player than Jamel Smith and Remy Ellie. Um, I don't think he's a better player than Jason Dickinson. I think Jason Dickinson is a player who the numbers game is really the numbers game and injuries have really hurt Jason Dickinson. If, if Jason Dickinson was healthy to start last season, I think he would have been would have played forty to fifty NHL games, and I think this offseason would have been slightly different. And he they would have made there would have been a spot for him to start this season in the NHL. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll defer to you on Pitlick as a player because I've never seen him play. Um, but I kind of trend towards the same answer that I think Jason Dickens, I mean, Tyler Pitlick was a 31st overall pick. I mean, shit, 2010 was seven years ago now. That That's kind of alarming. Um, but I, he was a 31st overall pick, so he's a talented guy. I don't know that he's as talented as Jason Dickinson, but he's probably a guy who will fit this roster better in terms of that third, fourth line extra forward flex guy than Dickinson would because Dickinson's a guy that I want to be playing every night, whether that's in the yeah. NHL or the AHL. Yeah. And, I mean, it's... He's a different... Pitlick is a little bit different. Pitlick and Dickinson are kind of in the same realm. Pitlick's a winger, Dickinson's a center, but um, they're both kind of in the realm of guys you want to be contributing as depth scorers. Um Jamel Smith and Remielli are guys in my mind that are going to be point producers in the NHL. Um, Remielli is a 
Remy Ellie, I think, had a really nice showing in the NHL last year and could be a really nice energy guy. He's a good bottom six player, um, but he's not really he's not much of a goal scorer or point producer, so I think he's a little bit of a different mold than Pitlick. And Jamel Smith, while he's a fast... Well, Jamel Smith is a fast player, and I think his speed can be an asset in the NHL. I think Jamel Smith's... I think... I think if any player benefited the most from Lindy Ruff, it's Jamel Smith, in my opinion. I think because Lindy, because there's such an, I think there's there's quite a few people, there's there's a there's quite a populace, and I've been wrapped up in it too, that were excited about Jamel Smith because of how much Lindy Ruff talked about him. Lindy Ruff would always talk about Jamel Smith being one of the hardest workers, always being one of the guys who was one of the, he always he always liked his game and everything like that, and. And it's led to this thing where people think where people think about Jamel Smith, and they think about oh well the Stars added these guys, and now Jamel Smith is going to be Jamel Smith is going to be stuck in the AHL. I don't think Jamel Smith is as I know I'm not, I know, I'm not, I know people are going to disagree with me, but I don't think Jamel Smith is as good as the as the outside attitude around him because I think a lot of people have bought into have bought into the have bought into what was said about him last year by the coaching staff, and that's kind of raised his profile higher than it should be. He's a very good story. It was really nice to see him play in the NHL last year. He went from playing in the ECHL a year earlier to playing in the NHL. It was a really good story. He's a good depth guy for an organization, but I don't think he... I just I don't, don't see Jamel Smith as part of an NHL roster. I don't. If I'm building an NHL, a strong NHL roster that's winning hockey games, Jamel Smith is not part of my team. Um, is not part of my team that's going deep into the playoffs as an everyday player. And, that, and that's not a... That is a knock on Jamel Smith, I realize that, but I'm not trying to... I'm just trying to address what I think is the outside perception of a player that is a bit higher than it than it should be. No, and that's... um, I mean, on one hand, there's... You're looking at a guy who I really hope he worked hard this offseason because coming in as a blank slate, he doesn't have kind of that buffer with the coaching staff anymore. Uh, but it's one of those things, too, where, I mean, he's obviously a talented player. You have to be a talented player to score yeah. in the NHL. But it's one of the, like, do I don't know how closely you followed, like, the mid-2000s stars, but I, I don't remember if it was, like, 06 or 07 or 08 or 09. I don't remember what year. It was one year when the stars were just absolute god-awful, and Nicholas Hagman scored, like, 35 goals or something like that. He had, like, 35 goals and 47 points just because of who he was playing with and how he was playing up in the lineup and... I was pissed when he signed somewhere else in the offseason. I'm like, this guy just scored 30 goals, and you're just letting him walk. And then he went to, like, either Florida or Toronto. I don't remember which one. And he just went back to being not very good. And it, it's basically one of those things where it's, like, guys play over their heads sometimes, or guys are put into a certain situation, and it kind of artificially inflates their value almost. So I'm, I don't necessarily know that is the case with Jamel Smith, I'd kind of tend towards, I need to see it again to kind of believe it. You know, one year is an anomaly, two years you're starting to see a trend. So we'll see if he's able to build off of it, but I would kind of, it's one of those things where it's like, I don't understand why people are getting, would be getting upset that the stars brought in depth because it's taking a roster spot away from Jamel Smith. It's not, you're getting, it's one of those, you're wasting energy on it. There's no reason to get worked up over that. It's not a huge deal. He's, he's a, he was a really good story last year. I'll say that again. He was a great story. To see a guy go from the ECHL to the NHL in a year, that, that's, a, that's, that's, that's a great story. But I, 
he's not he's not a player when I, and I even saw some I, and he's not a player that I would even put in their top I mean I, I some people think about him and he's not even a player I would put in their top 15 prospects just I look at his ceiling I just he's not a he's a good depth player for an organization that's that's what he is right when you're looking at a guy whose ceiling is fourth line winger fourth line penalty killer potentially extra forward that don't waste time getting worked up over that or I mean fourth line center on on a bad team but right. not fourth line center on a team that right. is supposed to be playing deep into May and April I mean sorry May and June um let's let's move on to the next question um question from uh, the username is just e and the twitter handle is plastid justin i think but the question is i'm not too familiar with radulov's playing style why is he such a good fit on the bennigan line uh is he a good two-way player i'll, I'll let you uh, field that one to start ryan he's a lot better of a two-way player than he was when he came back to nashville and then went back to russia he i, I know we talked about this when he signed or before he signed he, we, he was kind of looked at as a guy who dallas was targeting he was a guy who kind of proved a lot of people wrong last year in terms of his compete level, his commitment to training and being a good guy in the locker room and all that intangible stuff that you hear morons like Steve Simmons talk about is what makes a good hockey player. Um, he's, see, he's one of those guys that there's not a huge NHL sample size for me because I He's only been in the league for like four or five years, I feel like, because he's played most of his career in Russia. But when he was in the KHL, he was one, he was a perennial MVP candidate in the KHL. And now I'm not saying that means he's going to be a perennial MVP candidate in the NHL because the KHL is a step below the NHL in terms of talent level. But he's a guy who should be good for 65 points at least. I would say, well, not at least. I think he's a guy who who should be good for anywhere between fifty five and seventy points. He's, I mean, you the goal he scored in Dallas last year, just the things he can do with the puck. There is a handful of players on planet Earth who can do those things with the puck. He has tremendous puck skills. He's not a guy that they're going to throw out there on the penalty kill, but he's also, I think, not as much of a defensive liability as one would think that he would be. Um, I think he's a perfect complement to a guy like Ben and Sagan because he's a guy who doesn't necessarily have to carry the puck, but he can carry the puck. He knows where to be on the ice. And he's just, he's a smart hockey player. And he also, also, one thing about him too. um, And a lot of being a two way hockey player comes down to just effort. Just frankly. I mean, there's some guys who are better defensively at better defensive IQs, but, but a lot of what comes down to being a better two way hockey player is just frankly effort and wanting to be. And um, you went and after they signed Radulov, I went through and watched a couple of his games from Montreal. Pulled up just and just intentionally watched just his shifts. And there's things he he's an effort guy in all three zones. He has there. He's showing just as much effort in the offensive zone as he as he is in the neutral zone and as he is in the defensive zone. There are other players who are offensive players and get big money who don't do that. There are other players. There are quite a few offensive. There are quite a few players who are paid for their their offensive output but aren't in the defensive zone in the neutral zone they're they don't care as much and i think that's a big thing that's a big thing for me when i look at it's just does a guy actually want to want to be a contributor in all three zones and radula's effort shows that he does and b if a guy is showing he wants to 
and he, and he took he took pretty nice. He, he got much better as a defensive forward last year in Montreal than he was earlier in his career. And we can all agree Alexander Radulov matured from the Nashville debacle, what, six years ago now? Four years ago? 11-12, uh, so five. five years ago. Yeah, so we can all agree he's matured since then. And he has, and I think he can also take a step forward under Ken Hitchcock because that that top line, um, if it's if it's Ben Sagan Radulov like we think it's going to be, I think all three of those players can get much better under Ken Hitchcock with his attention to detail and 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 we've talked about how Tyler Sagan can become a true two way center. Um, we saw Ken Hitchcock turned Mike Madano into a two way into a uh, into a two way player and. I think, I think it'll be a good, it will be a good fit. Uh, it's exciting because of what he can do with the puck. It's exciting of what he can do with the added time and space. It'll be the it'll be the best line. This will be the best line. I mean, Alexander Radulov was doing exciting things with the puck, and he's never played on a line as good as one he'll play with Jamie Benn and Tyler Sagan. Um, you could argue. I mean, you could. I mean, Max Pacioretty's a hell. He played with Max Pacioretty quite a bit, and Max Pacioretty's a very good player. But the, that that th- he never played with two players like he's going to be able to play with on this level, and it's going to be very exciting. But what he's also willing to do in the other three zones and is all and commit to an all-around game. That's what makes. That's what's going to be a big part in making that line successful and and trusting them to be on the ice late when they're playing. Vegas doesn't have a good first line. I was about to think about Vegas's first line on opening night, so that's a bad Oops. example. <laughs> but oh, I guess get, who was his center I, last year? Like Thomas Plakanic? I think uh, so. Alex Galchenyuk? No, I think he might think it was Galchenyuk because they were jerking him around between the wing. And so, yeah. Thomas Plakanic is not on the same planet as Tyler Sagan. So no. Um, so so on the second night of the season, when on the second night of the season when the Stars play the Blues and they're going up against the Tarasenko line, you won't have to worry about. You won't have to be as concerned about having a. You can go strength on strength and not worry about your top line, especially if they're gonna. Especially if St. Louis says the last change is gonna try and line match against you, you're going to be. You're not gonna have to just worry about an effort from your top group to actually play hockey in all three zones, and I think that Radulov adds that and, and adds a boost to that top line in that way. In eight years in the KHL. In 391 games, he put up 492 points, which is 1.26 points per game. Again, not the same level of competition, but you put him on a line with two other, I'd argue, top 15 players in the NHL. Who knows what his ceiling is? And I, it, it's, I get that it's rare that a guy in his 30-year-old season just completely explodes and puts up career numbers, but I... It would not be surprised to see Alex Radulov explode and put up career numbers. Granted, his NHL career number sample size is obscenely small, but I wouldn't. The more I think about it, I would not be shocked if he hits seventy points this year. I don't. I don't think that. I. I, I want to see how they play first. How? Because mm-hmm. for all we know, he doesn't have chemistry with these guys at all, and he ends up playing with Jason Spezza and Matthias Janmark, for example. But I, in a perfect video game world where intangibles don't matter. I would not be shocked to see him hit 70 points. Yeah. Let's let's move on to the next question uh, from Chris Story, the Chris Story on Twitter. Um, how will Jimmy Ben's role change on the ice under Hitch? Um, 
I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's going to change. Frankly, I mean, it's it's going to be. We just kind of touched on how he's going to have a better line. He's going to have play on a better line than he's ever played on before. For like Tyler Sagan and Jamie Ben have never played with. Uh, even when they played with Jason Spezza, Jason Spezza was not the Jason Spezza of his Ottawa days. So, so Jamie Ben is going to have a better play with a better line than he's played with before. And uh, I think Jamie Ben's biggest change. And impact under Hitch is just Ken Hitchcock is not an easy coach to play with for at times. So you need your captain to be to have total buy-in. You need your captain to be a good uh, conduit between the coaching staff and the players. And I think that's going to be the biggest change for Jamie Ben under Hitch. It won't be on the ice, and he'll also be 100% healthy going into a season. And I don't think we can state how important that is. Yeah, that'd be really the only thing I'd have to add to that is I don't know that. I mean, he's been your captain now for a couple of years, and I don't think the on-race, on-race, the on-ice role is going to alter that significantly, but it's going to be, I think it'll be big for him to be healthy and kind of start the season off right. So it's, I mean, you're not dealing with the frustration of not putting up the points that he's used to. And I think that'll just kind of lead into everything just kind of working out a little better. Um, from Sam Morales on Twitter, will the coaching changes fundamentally alter the power play penalty kill, or will the players simply need to execute better? Um, there's yes. going, yes. Well, the answer is yes to all of those, but um, the players do need to execute better. But there, there will be some changes. Um, I've talked to, uh, I talked to Stu Barnes, talked to Stu Barnes about it the other day. Uh, he is a. It's not going to be completely the same. The power play is not going to be completely the same as last year. It's going to be. It's going to be there. There'll be similar elements. There'll be uh, there'll be similar elements that are still going to be in, intact, but it's going to be tweaked. It's going to be changed. Um, I think fundament. The biggest thing for me when I look at the power play, um, and uh, this was even acknowledged by uh, this was even acknowledged by people within the organization that the biggest issue is just it needs to be more diverse of a power play. Um, there's there are elements of it that can work very well. For example, the drop pass, which is much maligned and not very, uh, not very popular among Stars fans, it can be an effective tool when it's not your only tool. And so the, the key is seeing more diversity within the power play. Um, and the penalty kill, a lot of the penalty kill just comes down to discipline. And uh, uh, there's going to be... You can't. Re- There's only so many wide sweeping changes one can make on a penalty kill. It's just a lot of it comes down to attitude and having and actually doing your advanced scouting. And uh, Rook Wilson should do a much better job of that of figuring out what the other team actually wants to try to do. Because a lot of the penalty kill is reactionary versus actionary. I never really knew how to describe what was wrong with the stars power play i didn't know the word for it and diverse is perfectly it it is not a very it's a very not diverse power play that's all i have to add (laughs) (laughs) yep well um that's all the questions we have um unless we i should address the question where someone says i don't know anything but um that's always fun it's actually the first mean tweet of the uh, first mean tweet of September. So good for you, uh, Jay Snyder Jr. It's not even that mean. It just just thinks I have an ego, I guess. How would Shapiro know? Yeah. 
Anywho, um, that's that's all we've got for today. Um, well, actually, we're gonna get back into the uh, weekly uh, the weekly podcast schedule. Um, I think we'll record. Uh, we might record next Sunday, depending on uh, if if Ryan can. Uh, we might record next Sunday during the off day in Traverse City and kind of discuss what's happening because uh, Traverse City, how the schedule works, is they play Friday, Saturday, there's a day off Sunday, then they play Monday, Tuesday. So we might uh, discuss that on... Uh, might, might pro- I think we'll probably record next Sunday um, just to, uh, to continue the podcast, and then uh, I'm sure we'll... And then we'll also have one uh, up right before training camp starts to kind of get the season going. Um, but... Uh, we will be back to a weekly format for the podcast. That's the most important thing to say. And uh, as the season gets going, we're going to try and maybe even get more than one a week um, just to try and get some players and get some more interviews in, in, involved in this. I like how that sounds. Yes. I want Ben Bishop as the first one. He seems like a goofball. Him or Mark Mathot. Or Cracknell. Cracknell yeah. would be good. Yeah, that'd be good. Well, we will uh, we will talk next week, everyone. Thank you for listening.